Hello, I'm Kate McLaughlin and I'm delighted to be talking to my great friend um, Shantanu Das, Professor of Modern Literature and Culture at the University of Oxford and Senior Research Fellow here at All Souls College. Shantanu's glittering achievements are literally too many to list. I will just mention his Philip Leverhulme Prize and his multi-million euro HERA project on cultural exchange during the First World War. And he's the author and editor of a number of celebrated volumes, Touch and Intimacy in First World War Culture, 2005, Race and Empire in First World War Writing, 2011, and The Cambridge Companion to First World War Poetry, 2013. And in 2018 came the magnum opus India, Empire and First World War Culture, which is what we're going to talk about today. So thank you for talking to me today, Shantanu. Thank you, Kate, for that very generous introduction. So we're going to talk about India, Empire and First World War Culture. This is an extraordinary book in so many ways. The scale of the research, I know you took at least 10 years on it. The beauty of the writing, the historiographical perceptiveness and the wonderful richness of the evidence. We draw on images, objects, songs, recordings, diaries, memoirs, novels, poetry, ephemera. The list is practically endless and I'm not even doing justice to it. And towards the end, you ask a very important question about commemoration, and it's this. Is a plinth or plaque or statement with a cryptic one-line message the most apt way to commemorate such complex stories? A more expansive form of commemoration, you say, may be a more appropriate, even if less visible, testament. So could you comment on your extensive research as an act of commemoration in itself? That's a really interesting question. It partly depends on how we define or understand commemoration. Mm. Now, if we go back to the Latin root of the word commemoratus, which meant how to bring to remembrance, I guess I was partly doing it because I wanted to bring back to our memory mm -hmm. and also challenge the color of war memory, at least in Britain, and kind of Europe and America by recovering the experiences of the one and a half million Indian men, both combatants and non-combatants, who were recruited into the armies. But I didn't want to recover what they did or the medals they got, but how they lived, mm -hmm. loved. Mm -hmm. I wanted to recover the texture of feeling and experience and this also may count as commemoration because in the process I have to deal with the messy contingency mm -hmm. of everyday life experience. There were two problems I faced. One is cultural, the second more conceptual. First, how do you commemorate this huge group of people who did not know how to read or write and did not leave traces in the culture of the time? And the second question, why do we commemorate? Can we commemorate the Indian soldiers without endorsing what they fought for, which would be for empire, or what they did, mm -hmm. which would involve killing lots of Germans and Turks? So I think you make a very powerful case, both explicitly in your book and in the manner of your research and your writing, for complexity as a key form, a key element of commemoration. It seems to me that um, commemorative services often involve quite simple, if symbolic, acts 
And I think the detail that you've recovered from the historical record, which may in its way be messy, which may in its way be contingent, is a really important model for remembering that these things are very complex. So that leads me on to the next question, which is you have such an incredible range of sources in this book and you travelled far and wide to look in archives. How did you set about identifying your sources? How did you find them? Mm. If I may, uh, I'd like to answer both the question, the messiness of history, as well as this range of sources together by starting with a particularly messy source. And it comes from my own family. One of my great uncles, he volunteered as a doctor. He was part of the Indian Medical Service and he served in France for four years during the war. And we have some of his artifacts, like some of his medals, his uniform and all that. Now his own, his brother, he was quite a bit younger and in 1930s he joined the Bengal Revolutionary Forces and he was locked up in Presidency Jail in Calcutta and beaten to death. So in the same family of two brothers, one fights for the empire, the other gets beaten to death in a colonial jail. Mm. How do you unpack this contested and messy history? So my second example, this was around 10 years back when I just started doing the research. I came across a sealed document saying confiscated in the National Archives in India. And this was a trench notebook of this man called Mir Must. And I had heard about Mir Must because he is one of the few Indians who crossed over to the German side and then was sent on this extraordinary jihadi mission along with German bureaucrats. He went to Kabul and then to Afghanistan. Now his own brother, Mir Dust, he fought valiantly and he was given a Victoria Cross. So this is what I'm trying to unpack and I have let the sources speak for themselves and argue amongst each other. Mm. But I always came across this problem that how do we go beyond the conventional archives because the conventional archives just have only a tiny bit of information about these people. And I realized that I have to go far beyond the written text and I moved into more non-conventional sources like photographs, mm. images, sound recordings, which for me are some of the most moving records, rumor, gossip. You know, we are talking about a non-literate but highly literary society who have grown up on this robust oral tradition and then poetry performances and finally imaginative literature fiction, short stories, and poetry written by the civilians. Because in order to understand war, we can't limit ourselves just to the soldiers. So as a result, I realized that I have to go far beyond the written or conventional sources onto images, sounds, and music, and read them both cumulatively and alongside each other, almost testing each other. Sure. to understand the diverse voices. Sure. And I think this is part of a really interesting trend in the writing of history, looking at these different sources. I mean, once upon a time, the idea of anecdotes being a historical source was being looked on with horror. But now, as you say, rumour, gossip, these are fascinating ways into the lived experience of, of 
well, in this case, the, the First World War. So sound recordings are some of the most fascinating sources you discuss in the book. And since we're making a sound recording right now, it seems a good idea to focus on them for a moment. So could you tell me what led you to the recordings of the Indian prisoners of war in the Wunstorf camp outside Berlin and what you found when you got there? I realised that the moment we step outside Europe and try to recover the experience of non-Europeans, we really need to move beyond the written word, as I've been saying, to the spoken. And I was particularly lucky because I was invited, uh, this was around eight years back, to spend a summer in Berlin to look at some of the sound recordings because a group of German historians had found some of the sound recordings, but they weren't yet translated. And I came across this absolute treasure trove. There were around 2,000 sound recordings done by a team of German academics headed by the Royal Prussian Phonographic Commission. And it had a combination of ethnologists, linguists, philologists, and they would go to these prisoner of war camps, particularly the ones at Munsdorf, which had a large number of colonial prisoners from across Asia, North Africa, and would record these men. These men would be asked to stand in front of the phonograph machine and read out or recite or sing something. And of them, around 200 are of South Asian soldiers. And I've been working on the First World War now for almost, my God, 20 years. And the sound recordings are some of the most moving things. And my immediate response would be to just cry. Mm. They were just so moving. And I distinctly remember this you know, Indian you know, soldier, Mal Singh. Basically, he was asked to say something. And he turned an ethnological experiment into a story of his life, referring to himself in the third person. There was a man. The man used to have ghee, which is a particular kind of butter, back at home and now because of this European war he had come to Europe he doesn't know how long he's going to stay here he still longs for that butter so home is remembered as taste let's hear it yes let's so I think you're absolutely right that's that's extraordinarily moving and what seems to me almost most moving I can't decide whether it's the catch in his throat when he clears his throat or it's the crackling because the crackling seems to at once kind of separate us in distance of time mm. but also make it very very immediate in the sense that here's the recording equipment it's crackling we absolutely. used to that sort of idea absolutely and I think maybe it's a combination of what you call the catch in his throat because you can also almost hear him rasping and, yes. you know, this sense of a slight breathlessness yes. and this silence, it kind of pauses and then the voice rises and yes. falls. Yes. So it's about intonation. And I remember as once you said so perceptively that 
we are in presence of the real, mm. however way we define the real. Mm-hmm. And this crackliness, which reminds us that verisimilitude is not reality. So Peter Jackson may colorize the photographs, but we are always aware it's not real yes. in the way we know that this is the real, yes. though it is distant. In yes. time, it's almost the opposite thing that's happening here that's with the voice. Yes. Uh, and what I find very moving is that what was Mal Singh thinking when yes. he spoke into the phonograph? Is it a desperate plea to be rescued? And what happened to him? Did he survive? We don't really know. Yeah. But also that he would remember the key or the butter, which gives us a very important socio-economic clue comes from the agricultural okay. background yeah. and most of the Indian sepoys because of the prevalence of the martial West theory mm-hmm. they were taken from a tiny portion of the vast Indian population mm. and that's the agricultural so-called martial classes okay and that has left its trace in the mention of the kind of butter in ghee absolutely and in the taste that that puts into the food he would remember. Exactly. Him. And it also reminds us that history is not just made in the corridors of power or in battlefields, yeah. but in this everyday, tiny, unremembered mm. acts. Well, absolutely. And I know we are now making a recording all these years later, and I personally am feeling a little a sense of occasion, a sense of performance. What he must have felt like, not knowing perhaps as much about recording equipment, but being... Oh, nothing on to play, knowing nothing about recording okay, okay. equipment. Or that um, we'll be listening. Yeah. Uh, or the very fact that often many of these Indians thought that when they were being photographed that apparently their spirits were being sucked out, so we have no idea at all. And just to think that all these years his voice had resonated in the corridors of First World War history, mm. trying to find an mm-hmm. audience. Mm-hmm. And it reminds me of this letter that I found written by a nine-year-old girl writing to her father serving in Egypt asking him to come back home because she feels so desolate and lonely and there also we don't know whether the father received the letter and you have these two people trying to connect meeting mid-air and you reproduce that um, card in that letter in the book and I'm very struck by how she's tried to make the handwriting very neat. Yes, she's actually, she's actually writing in Gurmukhi mm-hmm. and we know it's a child's crawl because she's trying to regularise yes. her hand and she joins all the words and you also realise and the same thing actually happens with the British Jewish poet Isaac Rosenberg. Paper is very precious. Mm. So every tiny scrap is crammed with words because you don't have enough paper, which is a problem which people like Sikvit Sassoon mm. or Edmund Blunden being officers never had. Yes. In my family, my grandmother's brother, her elder brother Bill, fought on Western Front and we have a little card he sent oh. back that said, it's a souvenir of France. It's got a little kind of pocket on it and a tiny piece of cardboard on which he's written, do your bit. Oh wow, how moving, wow. <laughs> it is, and it's just is the, it tiny, family, the your... ti- Yes, it is, it's wow. just the tininess of the paper that Absolutely. he's just putting on it. And it's often the fragility Yes. and the way these things survive yes. when often their owners have disappeared exactly. long ago and yeah. it's the combination of yes. the fragility and, and what and they the, and the, testify and, and the trace, I suppose, as well. Mm. It, this is a very grubby little bit of cardboard mm. and many thumbs have thumbed it, so... Mm. Which leads me on to my next question, the voice recording, the child's letter. 
and the stained spectacles as well that you open the book with, these have an incredible emotional impact. And it's obvious in your writing of the book that this has been a very personal um, project. So my question is how you see the role of an, an emotional response on the part of the historian or on the part of the literary critic. What is the role of that emotional response in creating an historical or literary historical account? Mm. Perhaps it had been one of the most challenging bits because where does emotion go in the actual process of research because we are doing the work because we love it. Mm -hmm. So how to how to justify and pay tribute to that love mm. without sentimentalizing it yes. or making it something tawdry. Yes. And so as a result I wanted to acknowledge that emotional impact when I listened to Mal Singh crying for that butter mm -hmm. or the little girl writing to her father. But the process is that you have to put the emotion in the work of analysis and critical reflection, mm -hmm. you know, rather than saying, oh, I feel so moved. And I think that's where the process of writing comes in because it's the texture of writing that has to capture to an extent the responses. And I think we are still struggling in trying to find a vocabulary mm. to do justice to why we do the work that we do a critical vocabulary and and often I think it's the present tense actually mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that helps in establishing that relationship like I remember one of the most moving things again I found was this pair of bloodstained glasses mm -hmm. which belonged to a man whom I who I later found out was the only non-white member of the Leeds Pals Battalion and that I found in India and then we came across more material about him in Leeds. And the very fact that something so fragile, like the bit of cardboard that yes. you mentioned, yes. that would survive yes. when the owner had died. And in, in many ways, this little the cardboard, yes. the bloodstained glasses, they're the handprints and the face prints of war yes. as it slices through human lives. Yes. And I think that somewhere we have to acknowledge the emotion because one of the things I wanted to make the book is to make it more palpable mm. rather than having it like in this abstract discursive sure, sure, prose. Sure, sure. And I think that emotional impact, the emotion running through it is, is very much to do with what lasts, what lasts historically. I mean, records and Absolutely. lists last, but emotion lasts as well. And that's what can speak across time and across cultures. I exactly. Think. And I think I was also, when I looked at the glasses, the bloodstained glasses or this girl's scroll, it was not as a scholar, but as a fellow human being. Quite. And I yeah. think sometimes we are in the danger of losing that humanity. Yeah. And that sense of shared vulnerability mm -hmm. in the face of violence. Mm -hmm. And that is also very important when we engage in these commemorative rituals. Because of course we have to respect and sometimes of course recognize the gallantry. Mm -hmm. But they're also deeply vulnerable people mm -hmm. who have engaged in appalling acts of violence on others. Mm -hmm. And we can never lose sight of the other side of the story. 
So that's a very interesting point, I think, because you might think that the conventional way of conveying the violence is through being very graphic descriptions of terrible injuries and things that happen. But actually, emotional impact is, is another route to that as well. Absolutely, and that's why I think throughout the book, what I've tried to understand and capture are structures of feeling mm-hmm. and often hear very ambivalent emotions packed into them. Yeah. So, for example, I often think of Wilfred Owen, one of my favourite poets, like, you are the enemy, you killed my friend. Mm-hmm. And it's that paradox. How would we commemorate an Indian who had been forcibly recruited by a British colonial administrator and this Indian goes to France and ends up killing maybe an underage German soldier. And to go back to your first question about commemoration, I think we would achieve what commemoration, in my humble opinion, would mean, that is both remembrance and reflection, when we manage to do justice to the memory of both the Indian and the German, but show the entangled history with the British colonial administrator without endorsing what either of them did. So in a way I'm recognizing their gallantry or sacrifice Mm -hmm. without validating Mm-hmm. the acts mm-hmm. because therein lies the danger of either validating empire or the violence right. of war and it's a very difficult yeah, yeah, yeah. threshold yeah. to negotiate absolutely so you've mentioned Wilfred Owen and this brings me on to my next question which is about the role that literature plays in this book so obviously you've, you've done a huge amount of work as a historian to produce India Empire and First World War culture tell me about literature because you you started out as a literary critic, you're known as a literary critic. What's the role of literature in the book? For me, the role of literature is absolutely fundamental to understanding history and to the way we now understand or redefine the archive. Mm. My background is in literature, and when I started doing the work, I did a lot of archival work. But you know, when you try to capture the past, whether it be European history or South Asian history, there are always gaps and silences Mm -hmm. in the archives. Mm -hmm. That's inherent Mm -hmm. in the formation of an archive. And I think as Novalis once said, literature fills in the gaps of history. Mm. So often you get tiny clues or tiny strands in the archives and then you go to literature and see how writers from that particular period have dramatized them, represented them, or complicated them. That's one thing. So I used literature. So I would often find a recruitment poster in the Imperial War Museum. Mm -hmm. And then I would find a little song about recruitment in Punjab. And then I would find a play like the Bengal Polton, Mm -hmm. meaning the Bengali platoon. It's a recruitment play which makes these references and represents this whole underground, shadowy world of colonial recruitment. That is one thing, literature as a source. Mm -hmm. But the second thing that is fundamental to the book is the literary as a methodology. Because I would look at an image or a sound recording or an object as manuscript trying to turn it round and round in my hand and do close reading. Yes. And that, I think, is my difference from the work of many historians 
could embed these things in a narrative, whereas I'd pause and critically examine yes. and closely read it. So for me, literature, both as source material and as a way of reading, and to go back to your previous question about emotion, that's where emotion comes in, yeah. because the literary yeah. always deals with narrative and emotion. And complexity. And complexity, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm interested in the question of whether we are getting towards a proper commemoration for a proper remembrance. And in the book, you draw an important distinction between the instrumental use of colonial war memory, which aims for a greater recognition of colonial troops, partly with a view to achieving a more multicultural agenda and combating everyday racism. But, so you draw this distinction between the instrumental use and the ethical use of it, which you say would involve greater attention to the minutiae of history. This is the idea of a more complex kind of commemoration. So do you see examples of the ethical use of colonial First World War history? Do you think that the men who fought in the British Indian Army and the other people who were affected, are they starting to be properly remembered? Mm, it's a big question. I'll yes. try to do justice. I think one of the lasting legacies of the centennial commemoration will be the greater recognition of colonial troops, particularly non-white troops. And there were four million non-white men, and mm -hmm. there were men mm -hmm. who were recruited into the European armies between 1914 and 1918, of whom one and a half million were Indian. And I think the centennial years has been marked by both a general broadening, that is an expansion in the memory, but also a process of sanitization. Mm. And I say that because I think often the complex and contradictory motives of a South Asian sepoy or Senegalese Thiralier or a North African Spahi, they're being flattened by the government into an ode of imperial loyalty and brotherhood, almost eerily reminiscent of George V's call to them in yes. 1914. Yes. And there's almost a sense that the only way to recover these colonial soldiers is to turn them into heroes, yeah. colonial heroes. And what I want to stress is that this is quite an insidious and dangerous process because on one hand, we absolutely have to recognize their gallantry and their acts and all the medals. But at the same time, also understand that they are deeply vulnerable people mm. and to do sensitively deal with these histories of violence and trauma. For example, I think that if we had asked an African soldier or an Indian sepoy, they would have more in common with someone like Wilfred Owen. True, some of the soldiers fought gallantly, winning the first Victoria Crosses for their countries. But the majority, I think, like the English Tommies, trembled like leaves and shat in their trousers as shells burst. And I think if they were asked about imperial sacrifice, and we often hear this word sacrifice in this commemorative ceremonies, mm -hmm. I think they would have pointed out, like Wilfred Owen, about the old lie. Mm. They were only too human in inhuman circumstances. Yeah. And the other thing I'd mention is that diversity does not mean decolonization. Just because we have a diverse memory of a small war does not mean that we have decolonized the archives of the memory because I think somehow this whole rhetoric of gallantry is being used and hijacked 
by different groups, including some ethnic groups and particular political parties, yes. to push a right-wing agenda of warism yes. and militarism. Yeah. So that I think the Indian or the African contribution often becomes a smokescreen. Well, I think you make that point very brilliantly in the book. You, uh, you quote Baroness Wasi, I think. And who knows, I mean, she most likely had the best intentions. She had, absolutely. Um, thinking about inclusivity. But nonetheless, it was that kind of heroic narrative that she was promoting. Absolutely. And I think so. It's not just a question of remembering the Indian or the African soldiers and non-combatants, but how they're remembered and why do we remember them because as we keep on saying that we have to recognize and remember them without perhaps endorsing what they did you're making the case again for complexity and i think it's laudable i i slightly worry that we're nowhere near that yet when recently in the news we had an actor who was astonished to find that sikhs had had fought in the first world war but it's at least something to aspire to Absolutely, and I think it is in that sense, you know, some degree of this instrumental use of memory is needed, particularly to combat the ignorant views of people like Lawrence Fox. And I had that question again and again, because when I was writing the book, that was the time of the spate of terrorist attacks in Paris, London and Brussels. And so I thought that if, for example, the First World War can be used to combat Islamophobia, Mm-hmm. more than racism, mm-hmm. why not? Yes. But at the same time, some of the histories are so messy that I think we have to look at these histories straight in the face in order to ask difficult questions about multiculturalism rather than just celebrate it blindly. Yeah. Because therein lies the hope. We have to work through it for a more peaceful and mm-hmm. harmonious future. And First World War histories, like for example, there are Muslims fighting against each other just as there were Africans fighting against each other. And I think we have to confront this painful materiality of the past for a more robust version of multiculturalism. Yeah, step at a time, I guess. Mm. So here's the last question. Many of us working on First World War literature and culture, I was only on the fringes of it, started to get compassion fatigue at some point in the centenary commemorations. We'd had enough of the First World War. In your book, you prophesy that in the post-2018 period, the focus of scholarly interest will move from the soldiers' wartime experiences to their post-war lives and the significance of the war, socially, culturally, politically, for the interwar history of those former colonies. So is that how you see current scholarly trends? We're now in 2020. And is that the direction in which your own research is going? Yes, but first let me correct you. You said you were on the fringes. You were one of the few people who had that long durée notion of the war. Well, that's you know, we just you. do 1914-1918. You do from the Anglo-Saxon of the <laughs> Iliad and Odyssey to now. And that is absolutely central, that perspective. Um, on what's happening, yes, I think the aftermath of the war, it may sound a bit bizarre, but still it hasn't been grasped properly because now there has been a global turn in First World War studies, but we are nowhere near understanding the global repercussions of the war. Mm. For example, the dissolution of the Caliphate, the formation of Turkey, the Irish War of Independence, Mm. the Bolshevik Revolution, the Amritsar Massacre. They are not separate events, but they are integrally related to the First World War. And we are living with the consequences of the treaties that were made about the Middle East mm-hmm. after the war, even now. Sure. Yeah. And I think they will come back again and again to us. And it's only after 100 years that I think we are in a position to assess, to understand. 
the things that were being produced in the 1920s and 1930s and read them as war literature. For example, you know, I think of a novel like A Passage to India as a war novel because Foster starts writing it before the war mm -hmm. and the vision completely changes when he visits India after the war so that when Muhammad Aziz and Fielding, they're on their horses in the famous final scene and when Fielding says, can we be friends? And he says, not yet. Mm. We have driven all the English people out because that's what you had promised us in this last war that you'd leave and we'd get your independence. And that was what, 1924? 1924, he published it in 1924. Yeah. So you have the long shadow of the war. So I think there's a lot of literature being written in the interwar period and even during the Second World War. Yeah. For example, when Jean-Paul Sartre in Being and Nothingness, he's talking about the Second World War, but sometimes he gives examples from the First World War, mm -hmm. showing the porosity of memory. Yeah. And I think there will be a lot of that, but then I think few people are as well qualified as you because you have yeah. written both on First and Second World War. So what do you think will happen? I think there's probably going to be a bit of a intake of breath. I think that mm. the centenary commemorations took a lot of scholarly energy and were a great focus. I suspect that what's going to happen is those themselves, the nature of memory, is going to become the focus for a while and we reflect on what has happened. But then I think you're absolutely right in terms of seeing the First World War more globally. The things you've mentioned about historiographical turn in archive use, in things like gossip, rumours, dreams, objects, I think that's percolating through historiography, but also through literary criticism as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I think a lot of new voices have been recovered. I, I wonder, I'm, I will be interested to see, and I think it's too early to tell yet, exactly what, how scholarship is going to react to the Second World War centenaries, which will be coming, and we're, we're sort of living a hundred years later, mm. that sort of interwar space now. Too mm. early to tell whether we'll be doing the same kind of things, or whether what happened in the First World War centenaries have broadened the discourses sufficiently so that it will be a very different, a different set war of exercises. In a, less, you know, it's a slightly different key because, you know, often that old question, why aren't there Second World War poets? Of course they are poets, they just didn't write like the kind of poetry that the First World War poets wrote. Yeah. And I think what the First World War, this extraordinary energy around commemoration has done, and much of the energy had come from citizen historians, not from yeah. scholars, citizen yeah. historians, yeah. is to shift the fundamentals of how do we do cultural history. Mm -hmm. And the whole definition of cultural history has somehow shifted. Yes. And I think the process of decolonization of the archives and what questions to ask of that new material. We can't ask the same questions of non-conventional sources as we yeah. ask of European sources from official archives. Yeah. Those questions would be asked, meteorological questions, but applied to different kinds of material because in the Second World War countries like India were divided against themselves. Some people were fighting for the empire, some mm -hmm. against the empire. Mm -hmm. And what is freedom? Mm -hmm. Freedom for the mm -hmm. Europeans or freedom from the Europeans. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think some of these questions will be asked in relationship to complexity of literary form. Yes, absolutely. I think ideas about testimony, ideas about objectivity and subjectivity and fact and fiction and everything between them are now completely up for grabs. Mm. Um, and the whole and field of life writing. Yes, the whole field of life writing mm. as well. Mm. So the First World War and, and the centenary commemorations have had a huge impact on all kinds of uh, scholarly discourses. 
Absolutely. And again, the question of emotion that you asked, I think hopefully we'll be moving towards a framework that is both intellectually robust and emotionally moving. Yes. Because one at the expense of the other doesn't really help. And I do think that if we are talking about a subject like the war, we mm -hmm. need to retain that sense of emotional sensitivity and never ever forget that we are dealing with histories of violence and trauma. Shantanu, thank you so much for a fascinating conversation. Pleasure. Thank you so much. <laughs>